It always, it always uh, makes sense to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying, um, just, as a, just as an aside, because sometimes when the Holy Spirit speaks, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to say uh, there's someone here who needs a healing and you're all just going to sit down and look at me and go, no, that isn't what the Lord is saying. Uh, and that is embarrassing sometimes and humiliating if you believe that you are a Christian leader. But just with risk in faith is what we're about. So you risk in faith. The Lord is not here to humiliate us, but he is here to bring uh, healing to his people. So thank you for everyone who just were courageous in standing up at that point. We continue to pray. And if you want to talk anything through, of course, you can talk to me or any of the pastoral team here at St. D's. I want to read from uh, Luke chapter 19. Uh, it's an unusual passage or passage we don't often uh, read about because it's a similar story we call the talents. This is the parable of the ten minas. And uh, if you want to access a Bible over there on the side or your devices, love you to have a look at this complicated text with me for a moment. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas, which is quite a lot of money, about, if you like, a thousand pounds, for example. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. But he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your minna. I've kept it and laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his minar away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minars. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that everyone has, who has, more will be given, but as those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken from them. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. When I was a student, I found myself really struggling for uh, money, and um, I was trying to rack my brains as to what I could do to earn more money, uh, which enabled me to buy more beer, um, such as the student life I was living. And, uh, and, and I was in, uh, in Cambridge, they have these long boats, they're called punts, they're kind of strange square wooden boats, and uh, men stand on the end with, 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 not all men, women as well, with poles, and they, they kind of push along, and you have, you have people in your boat, and you basically have a little chat with them for about an hour, and then they give you a lot of money, that's what I noticed. So um, I bought an old scrappy boat, uh, which I'm quite good at woodwork, so I bought this old boat, and it was basically a sinker, but I, um, I fixed it up in my student digs back garden, and then, um, 
I patched it up over the winter and spring came and the moment came for me to launch the boat. And it, you know, it, it, it was still pretty dodgy, but a few rugs uh, in the right places and it looked like it was pretty much seaworthy. And uh, you know, what, 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 what I understood was I was highly motivated to make money. And so I used my motivation and enabled me to be entrepreneurial. I got my boat on the water. I bought one of those weird straw boater hats, which made me look more the part. And I looked like one of these little kind of vesty kind of things, you know, like a little singlet, look, look very smart, uh, and some kind of, some slacks, uh, some khaki slacks, you can imagine that, I'm like, now I'm looking like a proper gondolier, and uh, I basically got my boat on the water, and I was like, then it's not that hard, you know, you stick the punt pole in the mud, and you use it as a rudder when you're going along, so here I am cruising around the backs of Cambridge, which is, if you've not been there, on a day out, it's fantastic. So I'm cruising around the backs of Cambridge, and there are, there, are, there are tourists everywhere, so then I start my little patter. Would you like to come punting? Come and join me, amazing tours, Will van der Hart tours. Uh, and, you know, charming people off the bridges, come down, come on, come on, jump in. And I was undercutting the opposition, because basically I had no overheads and no insurance. Um, <laughs> so here was I, floating along the backs of the river, you know, uh, the, the river Cam, and I'm putting people in my boat, and, you know, people from from America, and people from China, and people from France. It was fantastic, apart from I didn't know anything about the history of Cambridge. So as I punted along, I kind of just generally made stuff up. And then I, and then I picked up stuff from other puntsmen, just little, you know, little fag ends of conversation that I then wove together into a rich new history of the backs of Cambridge. And I had them laughing and weeping in tears and amazed at this phenomenal history which I had devised and all was going very well and I was earning really rather a lot of money. And uh, I, was, I was doing this alongside my studies and, and, and one evening I'd done eight trips and I was taking about you know, 20 or 30 quid a trip so this is quite a good business. And one evening I'd done eight trips, I was feeling pretty tired but as I went past the, the lawn of what I thought was Clare College, actually it was Trinity College that shows you how things were going. Um, there were two smart gents standing on the side, and they said, oh, have you got time for one last trip? And I was like, I know, one more trip, you know, 30 quid in the pocket. Of course, yes, come down, gents, have a seat. So, of course, I started my patter, punting along, you know, getting really into it. They seemed really animated, so, you know, I was really extrapolating the stories, making them even more dramatic, and they were nudging each other, and they were really into it. The whole trip, they were fascinated. And when we pulled in, and I dropped them off. They said, that was the most interesting tour of the Cambridge Backs we've ever had. And at that point, a little alarm bell went off in my head, thinking, you've done this before? They said, we're, we're history professors at Trinity College. Um, we have never heard a revisionist history like that before in our entire time here. And they gave me a tip of just five pounds. It wasn't the biggest tip I've ever heard. It was that they gave me a tip of five pounds to buy the Puntsman's Guide to the Backs of Cambridge. So I might give a genuinely honest tour from now on. Pretty humiliating, pretty embarrassing. But you know, we're motivated by many things. And our motivation can be good or ill. And the trouble about motivation, it gets us into a good position, good opportunity. But motivation uh, without truth is often a lost cause. You know, we can be motivated by all sorts of things, but, but we cut corners, we fail to understand the greater purpose or the, the virtue of what it is we're called into. And, and I, I've always been a great believer in pulling out our core motivations because it seems to me that Jesus had this particular gift of identifying the motivations of the people who wanted to partner with him. You know, there were some people who, who had you know, great ambition for what would happen to them if they followed Jesus. Some people wanted to kind of claim the Jesus name. 
uh, just people who are around him at the time. Lots of people have different sort of motivations uh, for being alongside Jesus. I find it interesting that Jesus picked 12 disciples out of people who, who, who culturally and socially weren't necessarily noted for being particularly ambitious. You know, a group of fishermen from Galilee. They were, you know, generational fishermen. They were going to be fishermen for life. So when Jesus called them, they didn't necessarily have a particularly big agenda. They were, you know, this is interesting, I'm being called by this rabbi. Something in my heart says, yes, I'm going to do it. But for some of the other people, some of the kind of complex and maybe highly educated religious people had other sorts of agendas for aligning themselves with Jesus. And, and their partnership wasn't quite what it seemed. And I, I want to encourage you all tonight, that we're talking about partnership here, and I want to talk about partnership tonight both in a practical sense, but also in a, in a, in a meta-narrative to say, actually there's lots of things that are keeping us from partnership, and one of those things is our own motivation. I want to help us to recognize that there's a difference between uh, partnership with a capital P and partnership with a small p. We often think about partnership as something which means uh, sort of the equal ends of our labor. So if I say, oh, partner with me in Christian ministry, you're imagining you're going to give up your job, you're going to come sit next to me at my desk, and you're going to work all these strange hours and go to all these strange events, and you maybe we're going to get on these strange collars, maybe even some robes, make you look like you're part of the matrix. The whole thing... Uh, is about equal partnership with a capital P, but there's a different sort of partnership, which is spiritual, cap spiritual partnership with a small p. It's an equal partnership, but it just not, doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, and the Christian life is around a sort of partnership, which is a partnership of virtue. It's a partnership of motivation. It's a partnership that goes beyond all of these sort of surface features. And tonight, as we begin this talk, I want to encourage you to say you all have the capacity for partnership with a small p. Because if I said to you, I I'm looking for partnership with a capital P, you already think of all the reasons why you cannot possibly give any more time or energy to the life of the church. And this morning I was speaking to sort of, you know, a hundred mums and dads of tiny little babies, whilst their little babies were generally running around and screaming. And talking about partnership with them is quite challenging as well, because they've got different sorts of demands. They're all looking at me thinking... Don't think for a minute, I've got any spare time. <laughs> and I'm going, I understand, I agree. But let's, in mentality, be thinking about partnership with a small p tonight. And I want you to imagine that you've got a full tank of partnership available. You've got 100% capacity of partnership with a small p. This is about heart disposition, much more than it is a practical outworking of what you happen to have together. Perhaps the most important indicator of Jesus' view on human motivation summed up in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And I think, again, we think a lot about monetary treasure. And, you know, yes, sure, to a level there's an extrapolation of that. But in today's world, it's not like we can even put our, our treasure where we really want it to be. Like, you know, Sainsbury's energy is getting on my treasure. Honestly, I'm not really that interested in Sainsbury's energy. Like, you can't really put your money where your treasure is anymore because no one's got very much and... You know, there's no, none left over to put it in the treasure place. This is about heart motivation. What do you really treasure in your heart? Where, where do you want to place it? Where do you want to put it? Jesus has the ability to identify the dark side of human motivations, greed, power, self-promotion, control, and exploitation. And it was that perception that set him at odds with so many of the religious leaders of the time. He was like, you know, you want, you want to get the boat on the water. You know, you want the money. But you don't want the truth. You know, you want, to get, you want to get the ends, but you don't really want to be part of the methodology. And 
we've got this fantastic opportunity because this hall, which I don't know how much it would be worth, like, you know, lots of millions of pounds, fortunately it's not for me to sell, was, was built by this lady we've talked about before, Charlotte Sullivan. Now, she, she's this wealthy benefactress. She's the niece of Lord Palmerston, who is like a serious bigwig and lots of roads in London named after him. And, but she uses her money to create a mission hall because this area is filled with poorer people who've been working on the railways. And she wants to see them encounter Jesus, but she also meets their physiological and psychological needs by creating a men's working club and a, a promenade for them to walk around and exercise and, and promotes healthy living and, and also talks to them a lot and creates greater social integration. She built this amazing hall, and then, when, and then when she's built that, her faith extends, so she builds this incredible church, which we're in today. So we're partnering with the Holy Spirit on the work that had already begun. Her ambition, her motivation was, was for good, was for, was, for, was for great virtue. And so our partnership today is about acknowledging that we have the opportunity to restart or repartner with someone who has good motivation for truth. And that's what I'm asking you towards. You know, we could talk about an, a church hall that's just been renovated and looks absolutely fabulous. You'd be thinking, oh, that's nice. But, but it's not the capital P of partnership that's interesting. It's the small p. You know, it's not necessarily, although the groups that go there are very, very important, the small p is how can we transform this area for the glory of God in partnership with those who've gone before us in that same work of transformation? I don't know, I like to build on what other people have already begun. You know, if you, if you like see great foundations but an unfinished building, you want to kind of get out there. I'm like a restoring homes guy. I'd be like, oh, someone started the foundations, let's finish this off. Like, someone started Great Foundations 150 years ago, and actually what they're saying is, how can we partner with a small p to continue work that's already begun? This is the work of virtue. It's not the work of motivation. This is about saying, actually, I'm motivated by truth. I'm not looking for quick ends. And there's all sorts of pressures on charities these days, like, you know, church is technically a charity, you know, to maximize your profits and ensure your, your um, trustees, you know, receive greatest benefit from their assets. Lots of that pressure is on fiscal outcomes. But I'm not interested in fiscal outcomes. I'm interested in spiritual outcomes. Like, how can we use the facilities that we have available to maximize the spiritual outcomes of the Lord's work here in Parsons Green and beyond. Now, I want you to think about this parable for a moment. It's really about motivation of five different groups of people and what we can learn from them. And the first group is a group of people that Jesus was actually walking with. It says in verse 11 that Jesus told them this parable because they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. These people were looking for easy wins. Have you ever been along um, Oxford Street when suddenly everyone starts all looking in the same direction? I'm sure there are people on Oxford Street who just suddenly go, just to see whether everyone else will go, what is it? You know, we all sort of turn en masse to sort of see, you know, what, who's someone spotted? Is it a really famous person or is it one of those McDonald's giveaways? If you run along, you get a free voucher. Or is it like, you know, is there the, are the Coke guys there giving away the, the cans of Coke? You know, what, 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 what is it that we spotted? Now, Jesus is walking on his way to Jerusalem, and there's a group of people who's, you know, following along the road. There's a lot, a lot of action going on. A lot of people seem excited about Jesus. This is just before the triumphant entry. And to be, you know, I didn't come here for this, but, you know, something seems to be happening. So I think I'm going to just, like, join the crowd because something exciting is going on, and, and I might win. I've done it. I've, I've done, I've done that. 
tiptoeing in with the crowd. Something exciting's happening. I didn't come here for this, but seeing as I'm here already, I might as well just kind of carry on. Like Jesus is sharing this parable uh, with the first group of people because they thought the kingdom of God is coming now. So they just happen to be in the crowd and they're thinking, oh, I'd like to be in. Thanks very much. Now, Jesus tells them a harsh parable about a king that no one wanted to be king. He's pointing out the fact that actually there aren't any easy wins in the kingdom of God. This isn't like an easy win story. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble, and he's told his disciples, pick up your cross daily and follow me. So not exactly easy wins. You know, if you're going to be told that story in the crowd, you might like tiptoe out and say, oh, thank, thanks very much. Yeah, I've been wrong crowd. Uh, I'll get back to my shopping now. So the first call to us as a group of people is to recognize that, that partnership is not an easy win. Many of our motivations for being in church, as I say, are quite mixed therefore what we call extrinsic rewards and actually we're called to see a bigger story of partnership which carries significant costs if we were going to partner in business and you were going to do the work and I was not going to do the work when we go bankrupt you still carry the pain you know even if you've not done anything but I haven't I I mean we're partners but I haven't really done anything well you kind of have because you signed up to a partnership And when we partner with Jesus, we're not about to go bankrupt, by the way, but when we partnership with Jesus, the reality is that there is costs to partnership. And one of the challenges, I believe, in the contemporary church is that we, as leaders, can give you the idea that it's all good, it's all upside. You know, like sometimes in the charismatic church, particularly, it's like, we do great coffee. We do amazing after-service free drinks, non-alcoholic free drinks for you. It's warm. The floor is nice. We've got great lights. It's all upside. It's all easy wins. But I want to say to you, I've been a Christian leader for more than 20 years. There's a lot of downsides to following Jesus. There's a lot of cost. There's a lot of sacrifice. When I um, It was the London Marathon Day today. Um, amazing. Massive respect. When I... When I finished uni, I got called up. We were friends with some old bufters at Cambridge, a funny place. We were friends with some, 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 some like, old profs, we call it, like, up, in, up in Cambridge. One phoned me up and said um, he was running a charity, a neurological recovery charity, and a couple of his runners had dropped out. He said, Will, a few of my runners have dropped out for, for next weekend's New York Marathon. Could you and your mates fill in the gaps? I said, uh, well, you know, I was thinking, what's in it for me? He said, uh, I'll fly you across on Virgin at uh, all expenses, and someone will put you up in Manhattan, and we've got the tickets. All you've got to do is just basically run it. Don't worry about the fundraising because, you know, that's kind of covered, but we just want representation. So I said to my two uni mates, look, lads, we can fly to New York, all expenses for the weekend, have a massive time. All we've got to do is run 26 and a half miles, and then we can fly back. We were like all upside. We were like high-fiving each other. This is amazing. So we turned up at the airport. We were straight on the beers. We were straight in the lounge, you know. We were enjoying the whole thing, flying out to New York. We went clubbing on night one. We went clubbing on night two. We did a full tour of Manhattan and beyond all through the day when you're supposed to be resting your legs. And then we had to get up at something like four in the morning on the Sunday to run the New York Marathon. And it literally was like turn up on the line and start, I ran my fastest ever 10K, but I'd only ever run 10K like once before, so it was probably my fastest ever. 
It was a painful experience. I didn't realize actually there was so much pain involved in running a marathon like that without actually having done any training at all. It was, it was a four hours and 56 minutes of agony. Uh, and actually, I crossed the line with one of my friends. The other took seven hours. He stopped from massage. He was trying to, still trying to milk the whole thing. I didn't know you could have massages en route, but he was, he was still looking for upsides. Anyway, we got through it. We couldn't walk for about three days afterwards. We got through it. But the reality is, you know, if we come into the kingdom of God seeking just upside, we're going to find big downsides. Partnership requires partnership. It requires an acknowledgement of cost. And actually, I'd say to you guys today, you know, being a Christian in this nation at this time is challenging. The fact you're here at all is a blessing to me. I'm blessed by your presence. It's costly being a Christian in Western Europe at this time. That the forces of secularism are definitely against us. That, you know, the challenges of secular society are huge. The bear traps are many and plentiful. Like, there are very few upsides. In Victorian Britain here, when they were literally opening a new church every week, there were hundreds of thousands of people coming to know Jesus, and there were celebrations on the streets. Being a Christian was like you were high-fiving everyone from your village that you'd just become a Christian. They were having street parties for people who came to faith. They were having all-night prayer meetings in city centers. Amazing things were going on, and culture said Jesus is Lord. But today, they're not saying that. They're saying, I don't want you to be my king. Partnership is costly. You know, the second group of people that Jesus talked to are a group of people who really who were highly motivated and willing to travel for their cause, but the energy and their motivation was rebellion and not reconciliation. Now, they wanted to send uh, delegations ahead of this new king to say, we don't want you to be our king. Now, another reason that people have another motivation they have for partnership is because they really want to bring change. If some people get married, they think, oh, they'll do. And since I'm married, I want to change them and get what I really want. I'll partner with you. And then when I've, when I've got you in my clutches, that's when I'm going to get. There's the old joke that the vicar says to the bride, you know, she's really nervous. He says at the back, you know, all you've got to remember is like, I'll just walk down the aisle and then come to the altar and then sing the first hymn. I'll then altar, and then him. And the, the groom is standing there, and he's looking back, and he sees the bride walk in, and she's saying, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. Yeah, no, it's a bad one, I know. It's a bad one. <laughs> now, some people partner with the church because they want to change it. They want to bring an agenda. Uh, they want to, sometimes they just want to sow discord. Now, I'm all about an accountable leadership. You know, you've you got to bring your challenge hold us accountable, but hold us accountable in love. Partnership is about accountability held in love. Like we want to be a church that is accountable for the sake of the people of Christ and the people of the world who are coming to know him and the way we serve. So that partnership requires love and accountability. And when we come together, you know, we, we come together with all sorts of different experiences and all sorts of different ambitions, but ultimately seed into the greater cause, the greater mandate of the kingdom, which is what God has ordained for this particular church. We talk about being a story of blessing for the people of Parsons Green and beyond. Now you might think, but well, I live in Streatham Hill. How does that work for me? I say, well, it's not all upside. Like you're part of a community which is seeking transformation in its local area. So... If we are local-centric, 
that's going to exclude Tretton Hill, although it's a lovely place, and the Lord bless it. The key thing is you've got to make that decision to say, or I'm in partnership for the sake of the ends of the ministry of the Lord, where the Lord has directed the people to ministry. And it could be so easy for the new hall that we're launching just after Christmas, you know, to be this sort of bolt-on that you guys just go, oh, yeah, they've got a church hall, you know, AA in there, and, you know, Crossline, and Kids Matter, and, you know, local support groups with vulnerable people, and homelessness, all very lovely, but it's nothing to do with me. The thing is, I'm afraid it is everything to do with you because if you're partnering with us in the mission of God you're partnering us with all of our mission like the IJM team I, I didn't cycle my wife cycled but I didn't I didn't cycle but I'm 100% there going come on like I want to see children set free from salt pan slavery or from sexual slavery all sorts of hideous stuff going on in our world I want to see those kids set free I want to partner with you on your 280 kilometer cycle ride in the pouring rain I'll watch you on Instagram, and I'll pray for you. But I, w I, want the, I want the ends, but I want the virtue. I want to say yes, I partner with the truth, that this should not be happening in our day. So if you partner, you're partnering with a small p in heart. It doesn't mean you've got to get on the, on the bike, but it does mean that you have to be all in. The third group of people I want to highlight in the passage were those who are motivated by fear. In verse 20 to 26, we see an exchange between the master and the servant who hid his, hid his minos in a, in a cloth. Uh, and, and someone struggles with anxiety. I find this text really important because it, it really illustrates how fear is not just some sort of benign force in our lives. Now, you can be like, but I'm just a quiet person, Will. I like coming to church and being quiet and being kind of on my own. And, you know, this is okay. This is what I do. And, I, you know, the Lord doesn't reward loud people. It's not, there's not a hierarchy here. And being quiet is fine. But participation still requires participation. Like partnership still means partnership. And, and fear says, yeah, just don't get really involved. Because if you don't risk anything, you can never be humiliated in public. Now, if you don't actually risk, if you don't actually invest, if you don't actually take your gifts and put them out there, you know, you're not really partnering. You're kind of silent partnership, which isn't really a partnership at all. Like, ultimately, this passage is saying, God has put gifts in each and every one of you for the kingdom of God. He's, he's gifted each of you. Now, what are you going to do with the gifts that he's given you? Again, don't suddenly start thinking capital P here. Like, oh, what have I got to do? Quick, take time off work. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying God has placed gifts in each of you for the sake of building the kingdom of God, they might be the gift of prayer, they might be the gift of encouragement, they might be the gift of administration, they might be the gift of service. What he wants from you to do is to invest your gifts for the sake of that end. What he doesn't want you to do is to put your gift in a piece of cloth and bury it in the ground. Like, because ultimately there is no return on that gift. Like, it, it, there's, there's nothing there. When we're motivated by fear, we adopt this defensive position that seeks to minimize danger you know if you hid 10,000 pounds in the ground 40 years ago it would be worth a thousand pounds today it's not the antiquity value by the way like not selling old coins here I'm talking about the actual monetary value if you put a thousand 10,000 pounds in the ground 40 years ago maybe this week will be worth about 500 pounds after last week's dip so uh, but but that's the nature of inflation you know, the reality is, if you're standing still, you're going backwards. 
Like, you cannot withhold your partnership and expect that that partnership value is of equal value 40 years later. So if you're planning on just sitting there for the next 40 years, it's not like your investment is equal, your investment is in decline. We need to be people who are courageous to build Christ's church in the UK today. If you hear the Church of England using language like we are managing decline, that is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as managing decline. You are breaking the church. Like there is no managed decline. Managed decline is just basically a loss of mission, which means that the church is losing its ground. You cannot manage decline. Decline is decline. It's just failure. It's just a disaster. And, and we're not looking for the sort of partnership that says, oh, we're going to gently and quietly navigate decline as a church. We are going to be furious and fierce in faith to believe for better so that this church might be full to the brim with people who've come to know Jesus for the first time. Like, that's what we're looking for. And that's harder now than it was in the Victorian era. But remember, in the 17th century, there were two evangelical curates in the entire Church of England. John Newton was one of the only evangelical curates in the church, and obviously he'd been a slaver for a long time. And he came down to London with a passion to see the city changed, because at the time it was just a wash with gin and an awful lot of the like dis, sort of the, the 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 discord and and the kind of licentious living was was in the priests. You know, if you went to the church in the 17th century in London, you would have been shocked and dismayed. And yet, out out of that movement came the Victorian era where they were building churches left, right, and center and great revivals around our land that led to the whole nation really coming to Christ. It's a remarkable turnaround and it's not dissimilar to what we see right now. If you're partnering, you're saying, I am partnering in faith with courage to see God's kingdom come even though we happen to be on the back foot at this time. Like I've been in the church for 20 years as a leader. You know, I've seen good things, I've seen not so good things. I haven't seen the revival I've been praying for. I've been singing that delirious song since 1992. It still annoys me. But holding on in faith to believe that something great will happen, maybe not in my lifetime, but in the lifetime of my children, wanting to see Christ's church grow again until he comes again in glory. That's what I'm into. Now, I said to this morning's congregation, you know, why is my daughter the only... 13-year-old there in the morning. Like, I want more. You know, I don't want her to be the only kid uh, who's coming in the morning. She's there busy playing the drums every week. It's great. It's her act of service. That's her partnering with a small P. But I want her to be surrounded by other young men and women who are all on the hunt for Jesus too. Like, how are we going to enable their generation to know and love the Lord if we're in fear of embarrassment or humiliation. The reality is it's not all upsides, it's gonna be costly. The fourth group of people in the parable are the servants who made both 10 and five times the amount of their minas. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't really overly reward the disparity between them. He, He doesn't say that the servant who'd multiplied up 10 minas, you know, 10 times his, his, his minus value is better than the one who multiplied five times. Obviously, there's a sense of responsibility that's applied, 
10 cities to you, five cities to you. But, but the reward is really in the growth mindset. And partnership is really not about end rewards, it's about the mentality that you bring to the partnership. Like w when you partner with positive people, you see positive reward. Some people are better at certain practical roles than other people are. So maybe they have greater practical responsibility. But sometimes it's people who've got very few practical skills, but incredible gifts of encouragement that actually add the greatest energy to a partnership. I, I'm not a brilliant administrator, as Laura knows all too well. But I also know that Laura would be unhappy if I wasn't encouraging the team in the way that I try and encourage the team. I know I've not really met an administrator with, you know, of her level with better skills of operational organization than Laura. I don't, I've worked in a lot of churches, I've never met anyone with her level of operational gifting. And I, I find it remarkable. Um, so I celebrate her gifts and she celebrates my gifts. The key thing in partnership is we see the whole thing grow. The reality is your mindset and your mentality have as much a contribution to our partnership than what you can practically offer. And that's why I really want to get away from this idea that you, if you're not practically involved, you're kind of opting out. I want you to say, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about here. You don't need to be practically involved. We don't need you to go around and start cleaning the loos next door. We don't need you to start organizing the bookings rotors. We don't need you to start calling up the people who are renting the, the building. What we want you to do is to say, I, in my heart, 100% in, because I want to see Jesus known and revealed to the people of this area. I want to see greater diversity in my church. In the morning, we're seeing great, greater racial diversity, which is something that's really on my heart. And I'm delighted for it. We've been praying for it. I'm longing for it. It's something which I'm all about. I'd love to see that happening in our evening service, too. I'd also love to see greater uh, extension of age demographic to make sure that we aren't seen as the sort of trendy young professional contingent. Not that there's anything wrong with being trendy and young professional. God bless you all. I'd love us to see greater social diversity where people who haven't got tertiary education feel really comfortable in this room. Now, how are we going to do that if we're not really plugged in in face-to-face -face ministry in our local community like how are we not going to become a holy club if we aren't really running tendrils of social transformation activity into our local community how can we do that that's why your partnership in this project is so powerful so important god isn't really looking to reward success itself he's looking to reward faith Last week when I was talking about giving, I was talking about the, the lady who just gave two tiny copper coins. And of all the men who put in, you know, whole buckets full of gold into the temple coffers, it was her faith that he celebrated. She gave the least practically, but she gave the most spiritually. If you want to partner with this church, give the most spiritually. Don't think about giving the most practically. Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. You know, I've, I've seen people leave Christian ministry, other priests, tired, I haven't seen what I hoped for, you know, how long can I keep cycling these wheels and not seeing any change? It's just really not on us. It's not on us to see the rewards. It's not on us to reap the gains. It's on us to be faithful and filled with faith filled with a growth mindset for transformation in this nation. 
My fifth and final character in this parable is actually the noble master who would become king. This, of course, Jesus is referencing himself. You see, the Ten Menace is the clearest expression of how Jesus saw himself. Some commentators suggest that Jesus tried to keep his identity a secret, or even that he didn't believe himself to be God. But looking at how he describes himself in this prophetic parable, it cannot be the case. He is the noble master, designed to become king, but not before passing through death into his kingdom. He is the God who gives us all of our gifts and all of our opportunities, and he holds us to account in the way in which we live and the way in which we partner. What I love about this is Jesus doesn't say, oh, there was a noble king who, who went to become king and everyone loved it. He said there was a, a noble man who went to become king and they hated him and they sent a delegation in order that he might not become king. Jesus is prophesying on what would happen in the coming weeks. But he's saying, partner with me in this struggle. Have faith in me in this struggle. He's the king who shares 30 months of wages, which is what one minas was, amongst servants, or really the word doulos here in the Greek means slave. Slaves don't merit wages, and yet this noble king gave 30 months of wages to these slaves and invited them to invest on his behalf. Love is Jesus' motivation because God's, God's motivation is love. Here, I'm giving you 30 months wages. Invest them. See what return you get. Don't worry if you fail. Don't worry if you lose all of that. Have a growth mindset. Have faith, have courage, and you'll see great reward. I want to encourage you tonight to say, yeah, you know, I, I'm filled with fear, or I have a heart of rebellion, or I'm looking for easy wins. The reality is that probably all of us have got a bit of mixed motivation. We can all relate to each of the characters in this story. That's not what's important. The important thing we can do tonight is make a decision for partnership. Like, I've given you a vision. Laura will give you all the details. But I think without vision, the people will die. That's what the scripture says. If we don't have a vision, we just dry up. We need to hold vision, be filled with faith, and partner with a small p, and just say, I'm in. You don't need to know all the small print to decide tonight whether you're like, yeah, I'm for Christ, and I'm for Christ's transformation of this area. So why don't we stand as we worship, we're going to pray. Just invite you, just as the band come up, we're going to sing just a couple of songs of worship tonight. There's going to be some opportunity to pray if you'd like to, but again, tonight we're going to have this in sort of 15 minutes, we're going to be sort of just enjoying some social time together, but if you'd like prayer, do come to the side here, but you might just want to do business with God tonight in terms of your heart and say, yeah, Lord, I want, I want a partner. These are the things that are holding me back. So why don't we open our hands as a sign of our openness to Jesus tonight. Let's pray together. Jesus, we recognize that um, you are the good king. And we can relate, Father, to everyone in the story. The people who long for quick wins, the people with hearts of rebellion and challenge, uh, the people who are fearful, the people who want to invest for profit. We can relate, Lord. And we want to make a decision tonight to partner with you with a small p. We want to say our hearts are in Jesus. We're willing to recognize that there are costs associated. 
Uh, Father, we know that the costs are nothing compared to the cost that you bore in yourself in order that we might be free. We recognize that we were slaves, but you have made us sons and daughters. And again, Father, we long to see our nation changed. And we know that will come not through managed decline, but through mission, faith, and passion in the name of Jesus. So we pray, would you release your Holy Spirit into our hearts tonight? Will you fill us with a new confidence to partner, to challenge, to hold leadership to account, to speak truth to power, to see representation for groups of people who aren't currently represented in our community, to see growth in our diversity, to see uh, an explosion of young people in our community, to see great access for people who don't look like us maybe or sound like us or have been educated like us or employed like us. We pray, Lord, with this place, become high, wide, deep, and long, diverse as your kingdom is diverse. Make us agents of peace and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together and I say, if you'd like prayer, do come along to the side.